Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to prepare for what is ahead in the oil industry. I get confused looking at all the inputs and similar argument uh, for iron ore that perhaps the rally has gone on too long has been made for the oil industry, that perhaps oil prices have gotten uh, too high and are due for a fall. I want to bring in Libby Tudus, a partner and portfolio manager at Cushing Asset Management, uh, to talk a little bit about what we should be paying attention to with respect to Oil. So, Libby, there is so much going on from uh, the political angle where you've got President Trump, who does seem to be supportive of fossil fuels, uh, but then policy changes that could prove to be challenging, frankly, for some of the big uh, energy companies that do business in the Middle East. What are you focusing on to determine the, the course ahead? Yeah, I think when you look at uh, crude oil, just like any other commodity, there are three main things, supply, demand, and inventories. And right now, we have several things that are impacting that. We have rig counts that, of course, Im- impact supply. Those are going up. So the fear of overproduction, we've got that happening. Uh, we've got potential import tax on on crude oil, which again, that'll affect the big integrated companies, but there are a lot of smaller domestic independent E&P companies that that won't affect. Refiners, they could potentially be hurt, but it depends on the details of the tax. So you really have to dig into the details. But if you take a step back, Trump's energy policy is reduce regulatory burden, increase production, increase infrastructure, and support export. All of that is very positive for the United States. Libby, I'm wondering if you could help me just get my mind around the world of master limited partnerships. I used to pretend that I knew something about energy transfer partners, but then it all went and it got complicated. And I think you would agree that it went from being something that was driven by demand for the yield Uh, specifically the payouts, because payouts from MLPs are treated as payouts, let's say, from a real estate investment trust. So it passes through directly to the uh, investor. So I'm wondering if you could just give me a a view of what's going on in the MLP space. And you might even want to use, you know, enterprise uh, energy transfer partners almost as an example. Well, it's interesting you pick energy transfer because that's probably one of the most complicated of the energy infrastructure companies. That's my, yeah, exactly my point. Most of them are pretty straightforward. It's a fee-based business uh, to transport, process, store crude oil, natural gas. I think that MLPs, which, as you mentioned, used to be a yield story, probably still are a yield story in relative terms, even though we're in a rising rate environment, yields are still fairly low. So people are looking for yield, REITs, utilities, that's expensive yield. MLPs are still cheap yield. But today in the age of the energy renaissance, which we're truly in, the story is growth. And so there are a ton of energy infrastructure companies 
that are going to be able to grow these distributions that can be five, six, seven percent. Uh, on average, six, where, where do we get a list? <laughs> I can give you a whole well, list of energy infrastructure companies. So, so Libby, uh, you oversee almost four billion dollars of assets. Where where are you investing right now? So, right now, given the uh, what we've come through 2015 and 2016, and coming out of the trough in the energy cycle, it's been interesting because the upstream companies, the production companies, they're a price times volume game. Price went down 75 percent in crude. Those companies' cash flows went down. The MLP companies went down right in conjunction with the production companies, but their cash flows didn't go down. Why? Because it's just a volume game. So as long as the demand was there, the cash flows were going to be there. And so the opportunity, there are a lot of MLPs that now have traded very attractive valuations uh, whether they have parents that have billions of dollars of, of infrastructure to drop down or they become a value story because they've been beaten up unfairly. Let's do the value story. Tell us, Give us a couple examples. Okay, so uh, NGL Energy Partners, a company that has been um, – was really beat up, saw its yield blow out to 30 percent. Um, they have uh, – they have done uh, several things to improve their balance sheet, bring leverage down. Uh, their big pipeline, Grand Mesa pipeline, uh, is now online. Uh, it's moving crude. And they entered into a strategic partnership with Oak Tree. This is going to provide all kinds of opportunities. They are going to be able to grow that distribution 20-plus percent this year and in the three years after that at 10% plus. So how do you, as a, an investor away from Oak Tree, get in on that? So you buy the public stock, NGL. NGL, right? NGL trades right now 24 dollars somewhere around there. Uh, and you say growth. That's what you want to be looking for, right? Because I often note that in dividend portfolios, people are saying it's not just the yield, it's whether the company can actually grow the dividend into the future. All right, that was a value name, correct? Yes. Okay. What? What? Uh, you say that there are maybe names out there also that are just going to provide new growth. Yeah. So let me touch on the, um, the, the fact that this business is going to have uh, – $500 billion of infrastructure that has to be built out in the United States to handle the existing supply sources. So you have many companies who have a very nice footprint in the U.S. Uh, companies like uh, Williams Partners, that's the premier natural gas uh, pipeline system in the United States. This is a company that has done some things uh, to reduce their cost of capital, uh, it's a company that is going to be able to grow at five to seven percent, uh, and, and a company that um, is is really in the premier sweet spot of the energy renaissance. Williams Companies. Williams Companies ticker WPZ. So right now, how much of your investments are predicated on the idea that oil prices will not fluctuate too much to the downside, meaning you know beyond $45 a barrel or lower? Yeah, that's a great point because the energy infrastructure business and, and the success of the energy infrastructure business is predicated on the energy supply chain functioning normally. And when you get down below $50, uh, it's difficult for producers. There are some that, that can, can operate in that area, but there, it's difficult for some producers to op operate uh, economically. Uh, 
so that becomes a, a an issue. If you get too high a prices, say we blow out $80, $90, you have demand destruction. Either of those things hurt it, but we think we're right in the sweet spot, $50 to $60. Thank you very much. Uh, Libby Todos, partner, portfolio manager, Cushing Asset Management. It's been touted as the world's most expensive company, at least by market share, one point or another. Uh, Apple coming out with their results after the market closes today. Here to tell us more, Michael Scanlon, Portfolio Manager, Manulife Asset Management, based in Boston. Uh, Michael, thanks for being with us. All right, so give us your your best estimate, guesstimate, and everything Apple. What's going to happen? What are they going to tell us? Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I think when you, when you look at the report tonight, there's obviously uh, the results from last quarter. I think the bigger focus for everybody uh, as they release tonight and conduct the conference call later on this evening will likely be more focused on what the guidance is going forward. Or forward. I still think when you look at this company, last year there was a lot of focus on the fact that it was actually a down year for them in terms of revenues and uh, the actual iPhone units that they sold. This year, they should get back on the growth trajectory, getting back to where they were in 2015. So, you know, that'll likely help prevent the type of sell-off that we saw early last year in the stock. Uh, Have we gotten any indications already about what their iPhone sales are going to be like? And how much is the response to Apple's earnings hinged on that all-important iPhone sales number? Well, I think when you look at the quarter, you know, people tend to focus, uh, probably laser-like focus on that gross margin number that they report. And there are some one-off items that they've had the last couple of quarters, especially last quarter with FX and some other things. Uh, And, you know, the stock tends to overreact to that number. Uh, You know, if you take a a longer-term focus on Apple, you know, it's it's a stock that offers a, a phenomenal total return, right? You get $35 billion of stock being bought back every year. You get just about a 2% dividend. That buyback's about 6% of the company. So you add those two things together, you're getting an 8% return before they do anything in terms of earnings growth or multiple expansion for the name. Well, well, just to do a little bit more math to make your head spin, we're talking about uh, sales of anywhere between 76 and $78 billion. That would actually be the highest revenue in a single quarter ever. Uh, also, gross margins of between 38 and 38.5%. Uh, that does compare to about 40.1% uh, in the year-ago quarter, correct? I think that's one of the big things, too. I mean, you look at this company, nobody makes money in smartphones. Right, and people are talking about this new Google Pixel phone, and you know, even the most robust projections are nowhere near the 230 million or so iPhones that Apple sells in a year. So, you know, the numbers are big. Yes, the market cap is big, but when you look at it from a valuation standpoint, I mean, Apple's at roughly 13, 13 and a half times this year. Even cheaper than that, maybe nine and a half times free cash flow because their free cash flow is greater than the EPS. So it's not like you're paying a premium. Uh, multiple for those huge absolute numbers that you just mentioned. Michael, uh, as an investor, how much are you hoping to hear from Apple about uh, bigger pushes into, for example, content creation or new apps and new services? So that, that's been a big controversy on the stock. And, you know, last quarter, when you think back to the earnings call, they spent a lot of time talking about the services business there and the, the strong growth trajectory and the contribution that they get because that's pretty high margin revenues. So that's really critical. I wouldn't expect that you're going to hear anything new tonight in terms of new product lines or anything that 
along those lines. They tend to keep that pretty close to the vest, and obviously they have those well-advertised uh, product announcements that they do. That being said, there is um, – uh, you know, a lot of um, talk right now in the industry in terms of original content production, be it Netflix and Amazon. Uh, Apple has dipped their toe into that area very, very slightly with this um, karaoke and cars initiative that they have. You know, I think the market would reward the stock if they can ultimately do something with the TV product where you can get a skinny down, cord-shaped type bundle product. But thus far, they haven't been able to reach an agreement with the content providers. Hey, you know, uh, Michael, I, you follow much more than than Apple, and I'm wondering uh, if you can sort of give us a little bit of a window into uh, the John Hancock Balanced Fund and some of the other funds that you run. Sure. So, you know, specific to the John Hancock Balanced Fund, tech is a, a pretty healthy weight for us in the portfolio. And, you know, it's, it's an area where we've done pretty well from an individual stock selection perspective. Tech thus far this year has been a pretty good sector. I believe it's second, uh, the second best returning sector only to materials. And we've had some nice winners in there with Seagate reporting blowout earnings last week. Applied Materials has had a really nice run here to start the year. Facebook's been another big winner for us. I guess if you were to look at it and point to the negative, really the only blemish for us thus far this year in tech has been Google, which, you know, when you, when you sort of back out the one-off items that they had this quarter, um, you know, that's still a name that we like a lot, and it is our biggest position in the portfolio overall um, by you know quite a wide margin over the number two holding that we have. Well, I'll just tell you that the the fund is up, I think, uh, a little bit more than 1.4% so far this year. Michael Scanlon, thank you so much for joining us. Michael Scanlon, Portfolio Manager for Manulife Asset Management, talking about Apple. Neeson, my Bloomberg gadfly columnist, my neighbor who sits next to me all day. Uh, Max, I want to talk to you about a lot of things going on. There's certainly a lot of earnings coming out from the pharmaceutical companies, but we need to really start with some of the rhetoric that we've heard from President Trump after his meeting with some pharmaceutical CEOs. Can you give us your impression of the comments that we've heard so far? Yeah, so we're, we're kind of just starting to get some details that are coming out of the meeting uh, from the part that the press had it on and, and from the CEOs that are now out of the meeting. Uh, Trump did bring up pharmaceutical pricing again, called it astronomical. Uh, that's obviously not a particularly good sign for the industry. But that aside, it seemed to be comparatively friendly. He talked up uh, friendly tax reform and uh, some deregulation at the FDA, which uh, might be a little bit more mixed. But um, the the pricing thing is still out there, and that's kind of kind of remain a looming threat. I'm sure that the CEOs tried to kind of talk him away from his preferred remedy, which is uh, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly. Those are the issues, right? That drug price uh, uh, competition, perhaps, and maybe even the bidding. Uh, they were talking about you know bidding for specific contracts. That would not necessarily you know competitive bidding. Yeah, that that would be definitely uh, a big downside risk for a lot of firms that, that do a lot of business with the government. Uh, the government, you know, if it chooses to, has essentially unlimited 
negotiating leverage because they grant the monopolies that these companies rely on. So if they, you know, use that as a negotiating tool, they they can pretty much push prices down whenever they want. They can set prices. So there, there's a lot of kind of a wide range of things can happen either from just getting the same rebates that are seen on the private market to something much more drastic, uh, which is what I think firms are afraid of. You know, Max, based on the market reaction, do we have a sense of what his, President Trump's rhetoric means of astronomical pricing? I mean, do, do people have a sense of what the implications are for these companies based on the stock price moves subsequent to uh, the language being released? You know, it's very much a guessing game whether this is going to be a, a serious policy pushed by the president or if he just wanted what happened today, you know, all the C's to come by and sort of kiss the ring and promise to move manufacturing back and, and hire Americans. Um or if, um, you know, and then there's the other kind of outstanding issue, which is can Trump actually get the Republican Party to come along on a policy that they've historically opposed? So really, um, I think the, the CEOs and, and investors are still kind of trying to guess what's going to happen next. Yeah, well, it is a challenge. I mean, I just I would throw this quote at you and then you can tell me which president said this. The pricing has been astronomical. Now, you could fill in the blank with a lot of different presidents' names there because they, many presidents have been critical of the pharmaceutical industry for the prices of drugs. Yeah, and I mean, that was, that was Trump there, today. Right? Yeah, and that, that's, that's not a quote you want to hear from the president. Well, yeah, exactly. Another thing you don't want to hear is that uh, the U.S. court system doesn't believe that you have uh, sufficient patent restriction on some of your drugs. And that seems to be what happened with Teva Pharmaceuticals, which plunged to its lowest in more than a decade following. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is an amazing story because there was stuff going yeah. on. The, just to, can you set back, set us right. straight about Teva and how Thanks. it came to be its generic business? Plus, go. yeah, and it's got <laughs> so, yeah, 35 it's, billion it's, in debt is really where I was it's going. A, it's a pretty fascinating company that, that's in uh, pretty rough shape right now. So they're the world's largest generics company and very much the world's largest generic company after they spent $40 billion to buy Allergan's legacy generics portfolio. Now the purchase price for that deal and its debt load are larger than its market cap after this uh uh, setback to its lead drug, it's, which is a multiple sclerosis drug. So I totally bungled it. What is the setback? Can you explain it? Yeah, absolutely. So they have uh, a drug called Copaxone. It treats multiple sclerosis. Actually, the lead patent expired some years ago, but they got patents on a more convenient dosage of the drug, which is just a couple times a week instead of more frequently. So that they've managed to switch patients to that and kind of extend the sales life of this drug much farther than anyone expected. But this might be the end of the road for that strategy because uh, the patents on that extension uh, got knocked down by, by the district court. Holy cow. Teva has more than $100 billion of debt. That's insane. More than 100 That's according to Bloomberg, okay. uh, the AGGD function. Uh Hmm. I wonder if that's accurate. Well, so, well I'm going to check that. But the shares are down. Uh, does Teva have a generics business that would be attractive if it was spun off? I mean, well, the, the generics business is the business. It's some, it's more than uh, substantially more than half of the revenue and should grow to half the profit this year, kind of as the the Actavis uh, acquisition matures. So, I mean, the, they've kind of they made that acquisition in order to reduce dependence on on Copaxone. So that that's kind of what they're betting on to you know see synergies from that deal and improve performance. But to date, it's been uh, pretty difficult. They they haven't seen the expected return from that deal or um, or improvement in the generics business for a while now.
Um, another being hit by the slowdown in the generics business is Pfizer. Can you talk about uh, that company? Their shares are currently falling after their report. Yeah, so they they uh, missed on EPS in the fourth quarter and also gave a revenue forecast that came in below expectations because they ex- expect to see greater than expected uh, generic competition on their branded drugs. So they're going to lose sales to generics companies like Teva at, a, at an accelerated rate and uh, don't quite have the horses in terms of uh, newly approved or, or expanding drugs to to kind of make up for it to the degree that analysts expected. So that's why they're down. Just uh, just to um, clarify, uh, when you said 130 yeah. uh, billion, y- you were looking at Israeli shekels. I did the math. It's okay. 35 billion, 34.7 billion. Sorry, right? thank you no, no, for, for why fact we, checking this, me. This I love is, it. I, this is why you have a Bloomberg. Uh, you know, uh, Max. Uh, just to continue that that thought. No, don't. Okay, uh, she, she's on. worried now. <laughs> uh, it, to continue that that thought, you know, we heard today earlier about uh, UPS, and they kind of said, you know, foreign uh, currency issues hurt their results. Uh, do you hear that from pharmaceutical companies? Um, on on a pretty frequent basis. I mean, you know, they they do business all over the world, and. Uh, the, the strong dollars is not necessarily to their benefit. And, you know, most of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world report in dollars. So they're they're facing that. And, you know, everything from um, the euro to, to problems in Venezuela. So it, it's definitely something. So they keep that, a lot of their currency overseas? You know, yeah. Like yeah, they do. Exactly, which is why you saw the, uh, the you know, they keep a lot of cash overseas. You saw that massive $30 billion Actelion deal, which was as much about using that currency in a tax-efficient manner mm. as it was in uh, actually expecting Maybe a return on that Maybe that'll be on, on the agenda, speaking with the president today. Yep. Max Neeson, thanks very much. Our gadfly when it comes to all things healthcare as well as pharmaceutical-related. I want to bring in Patrick Donahue. He's a German government reporter for Bloomberg in Berlin. And Patrick, um, just can we start with uh, your lay of the land and Angela Merkel's response to this assertion by President Trump's administration? Yeah, sure. Merkel was uh, asked about Peter Navarro's comments shortly after he made them. Um, the specific accusation was that Germany uh, Germany benefits from a grossly undervalued undervalued euro. Um, I mean, German officials are pretty used to uh, defending themselves against criticism about a an excessive um, uh, trade surplus. But in this case, Merkel simply said that uh, Germany upholds the independence of the ECB and that she plans she's happy to do nothing about the exchange rate. Well, she might not want to do anything about the exchange rate, but traders might have a different idea. Well, I mean, it's it's it was kind of a, I mean, it seemed to be a version of this the, of this standard uh, criticism of Germany's uh, current account surplus. And the, 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 to frame it, Peter Navarro was speaking to the Financial Times. Um, he seemed to articulate this as a reason why they were dropping the U.S. administration was dropping uh, TTIP, the marquee EU U.S. trade agreement, and that uh, to show that the EU was not a bilateral partner but was a multilateral partner, and therefore they would not pursue it. So uh, Navarro's comments seem to go in a lot of directions. 
You know, it sort of uh, brings up this other story that's on the Bloomberg this morning that's talking about how the EU president, Donald Tusk, said that uh, the 28-nation bloc is facing the most dire threats in its six-decade history in large part because of President Trump's pronouncements, as well as those by his staff. Um, What do you make of that? Uh, well, the EU, before the election, was already facing huge problems with Brexit, uh, the threats of, you know, possible disintegration of, of, of the bloc, and it was a refugee crisis and everything. Um, the unpredictability that's coming from Washington, according to Tusk, and he was talking, I think, in the Baltic states, uh, adds to that. And uh, he placed uh, the new administration alongside other EU threats such as Russia and China, and so that is kind of a snapshot of of where we are now and where European officials see this. Right. Um, Dave, I want to bring you in here. You know, there's a lot of catastrophic talk about the biggest risk, uh, you know, in decades. Potentially, we're getting closer to, you know, the end of the world calculator or whatever uh, some some, uh, researchers put out. The atomic clock, The atomic clock, right. Uh, Dave, where are we seeing this in the market? Well, all you have to do is look at the results out of United Parcel Service, UPS. I mean, their fourth quarter earnings coming up short of analysts' lowest estimate in the Bloomberg survey. Uh, their profit forecast for this year, missing projections, and a lot of it's currency-related. I mean, among other things, they're talking about UPSs that uh, adjusted earnings uh, may get hit before taxes by $400 million this year because of currency moves. And it all has to do with the dollar strength. So, of course. But don't investors look past that? Well, and I was about to say, I mean, that's that's not that's not hysteria. That's looking at the results and responding. It's not, you know, people really all of a sudden moving to cash or, or sort of uh, preparing for Armageddon. This is just people responding to earnings. I mean, I guess when you hear the histrionic talk, you wonder how do you pair that with what we're actually seeing in the market? Yeah, that's true. I mean, then again, you do have UPS shares down almost 7% in today's trading. So it's something that clearly hasn't been quite factored in to the extent that you're seeing that move. You know, is it going to be Armageddon? Well, I mean, certainly UPS isn't talking about Armageddon. At the same time, it is clearly something that's having an effect on their uh, performance. Let let me just uh, break it. And Dave, is it possible that any infrastructure spending plans that would upgrade roads, highways, bridges, et cetera, would be beneficial to FedEx as well as UPS? They would get to use these. Well, sure. I mean, you have to think more in terms of the companies that are actually going to do the work, the construction companies or whoever. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, it, there is the uh, benefit down the line for companies that actually use the roads, no question. And uh, also just want to mention, you know, I, I know this is off topic slightly, but, you know, the Super Bowl is coming up on uh Sunday, right? Super Bowl uh, 51. Guess who is delivering the Vince Lombardi trophy to Houston in advance of that? FedEx. There you go. Yeah, I could see your face just dr- dropping <laughs> well, I mean, when like, I mentioned football. Well, I mean, like we're talking football. about global well, you know, UPS, well, UPS, disintegration. I, I, I think they'll, the war will be around at least until Sunday to see them play the Super Bowl. Just have a feeling. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Patrick Donahue, thank you so much for joining us. German government reporter for Bloomberg in Berlin. As well as Dave Wilson, thank you so much as always for joining us. Bloomberg Sox columnist and a member of the live blog. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at 
Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.